Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Thank you very much uh, for braving the, uh, the atrocious uh, weather and the midterm elections as well. Um, and I think we've had far more rain in Washington this year than we've had in London, actually, which is quite, uh, which is quite an achievement. Uh, so, uh, um, and uh, delighted to welcome everybody here today. Uh, established in 2005 uh, by Lady Thatcher, the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom is dedicated to advancing the special relationship between the United States and Great Britain. For many years, the Heritage Foundation has had the privilege of hosting a wide range of British cabinet members and ministers, as well as key uh, NATO officials, including most recently the Secretary General of the NATO Alliance. It was Lady Thatcher's view that the United States is always stronger when it stands with its friends and allies on the world stage, and there is no greater ally for the American people than the United Kingdom. It is my pleasure to introduce Stuart Andrew MP. He was appointed UK Parliamentary Under Secretary of State and Minister for Defence Procurement at the Ministry of Defence in July and is responsible for the UK's Defence Equipment Plan, Defence Industry and Exports and Science and Technology. He has been a Member of Parliament in South Yorkshire since uh, 2010. Today, the UK-US Defence Partnership is the broadest, deepest, and most advanced of any two nations in the world. This morning, Mr Andrew will talk about what the United Kingdom and United States are doing jointly to build on their long-standing relationship to develop a capable future force that deters our adversaries while ensuring a secure and resilient industrial base. Please join me in welcoming Stuart Andrew. Well, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. I'm, uh, this is my first visit to Washington, uh, and I have to say that uh, the welcome I've received so far has been superb, and I'm glad that you have put on traditional British weather so that I feel at home. Uh, and also to be here during uh, important midterm elections. Um, when I first started campaigning, elections were very exciting for me. My first campaign was when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, in fact, in 1987. But now representing a highly marginal constituency, elections have somewhat lost their, uh, their excitement and f fill me probably more with uh, nervousness than, than excitement. But I really am delighted to be here today at the Heritage Foundation. Um, and I'd like to thank your chairman uh, uh, and your president for pulling this event together with such an impressive uh, group. And I'm grateful to all of you for making the time to be here today. Because right now, we're at a crucial point in the long and glorious defence relationship between our nations. 
I've been lucky enough to find myself close to the action as I've recently been appointed as the UK's Minister for Defence Procurement. Uh, earlier today, I had very productive discussions with your Navy's Under Secretary, Thomas Modley, and your Army's Under Secretary, Ryan McCarthy. And over the course of these next two days, I will be meeting some famous names in defence and aerospace face to face Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and Raytheon. And now I have a very welcome opportunity to discuss our two nations' present and future defence relationship with a room full of major players from government, industry, media and academia. But I'd like to begin by paying tribute to the work of the Heritage Foundation here on Capitol Hill. Barb has taken on a formidable operation. For 45 years now, the Foundation has helped frame and guide public debate. Your half a million members from all walks of American life look to you for simple and effective conservative solutions based on the time-honoured principles of free enterprise, individual freedom, traditional values of civil society and a strong national defence. Your work has never been as important as it is now as our shared values come under attack from the forces of extremism, intolerance and authoritarianism in the words of the United States' recent defence strategy, we now live in a, multi, a multipolar environment subject to sweeping changes, instability and unpredictability. The threats to our prosperity and our way of life are growing, not only in the traditional domains of land, sea and air, but in, in space and cyberspace. They come not just from aggressive state actors either, a belligerent Russia and a newly assertive China, but from criminal gangs and extremist networks across the globe. Nor do we, NATO, the West, the developed world, have a monopoly on te technological progress. Minor states are developing nu nuclear capabilities with global reach. And sophisticated missiles and other hardware are finding their way into the hands of non-state actors. Automation, miniaturization, and artificial intelligence are transforming the defense and security environments. While ever cheaper technology is giving even lone wolves with laptops the potential to unleash disruption across whole societies. So how do we keep our capabilities ahead of the game? How do we maintain our technological edge? The answer is through closer and broader partnership between our great nations. Our deep alliance has taken many forms. A shared language, maybe. A willingness to share sacrifices in defence of what we believe in, certainly. But one aspect of our partnership sometimes slips under the radar. The way we do business for our mutual benefit. And where is that business conducted? On Main Street or as we call it in Britain, High Street. Whatever we call it, one thing is for certain. Business is booming on the US-UK Defence Street, and for three good reasons. First, because the street is built on the firmest foundations, and we've been building on it for centuries. Ever since we signed our Friendship, Commerce and Navigation Treaty, following our little misunderstanding back in 1812, over the years, this foundation has endured through two world wars, 
the chill of the Cold War and the continuing struggle against extremist terror. It's a relationship underpinned by our joint work on nuclear deterrence, as this year we mark the 60th anniversary of the Mutual Defence Agreement. And it's a relationship that today sees us cooperating on everything from armoured vehicles to fifth-generation F-35 jets. We're proud to be a Tier 1 partner on those world-class stealth fighters, Proud that we're building 50% by value of all the planned airframes for the RAF and our allies' air forces. And proud, and I have to say enormously proud, that right now our mighty HMS Queen Elizabeth carrier is currently off your east coast after leaving New York last week, conducting live flight trials for those very F-35 aircraft. With almost 100 successful ski ramp takeoffs take so far, the first rolling landings, night flying and rough weather trials, our Navy's most powerful ever ship is truly teamed with the world's finest fighter. That's not only a landmark in our trans- transatlantic partnership, it's a quantum leap for NATO's capability. And ours is a relationship with NATO at its heart. Back in September... The Heritage Foundation hosted NATO's Secretary-General for the first time. And as he said then, and thanked you personally, for your steadfast support for the values NATO holds so dear. So please allow me to echo that, because Britain's commitment to NATO remains steadfast. Its role as the defender of rules-based international order has rarely been clearer as others seek to impose their own norms of intolerance, authoritarianism and real politique. We stand with you in making sure the alliance is fit for the modern world, not just meeting the 2% spending target, but meeting the 20% commitment for spending on future capability. And that brings me to my second point. Our defence street is flourishing because it is also a crossroads of commerce a place where free and reciprocal trade brings mutual benefits. The US is our biggest single country export market and our second biggest source of imports. We're your fifth biggest export market and your seventh biggest source of imports. Just as our capabilities in air, land, sea, space and cyber are effectively intertwined, so too are our industries. In all, American aerospace companies employ over 22,000 people in the United Kingdom. Boeing supplies our Chinooks. The Sentry Early Warning aircraft which safeguard our shores, the Apache choppers we've got on order, and supports 250 aerospace suppliers in the UK, more than 16,000 jobs. Together, we're well on the way to completing the new $130 million base for RAF's new P-88s at Lossiemouth, and that creates another 2,000 new jobs. Likewise, Northrop Grumman puts nearly $300 million a year into the UK supply chain, directly employing 700 people and supporting 5,000 more jobs across the United Kingdom. On the other side, British parented companies employ over 58,000 people across the United States, and total UK defence procurement supports 160,000 jobs in the United States. But our challenge now is to make sure that trading traffic continues to flow in both directions. 
That means building on the Defence Trade Cooperation Treaty we signed over a decade ago, enabling our armed forces to move nearer the goal of full interoperability, leveraging the strength of our defence industries together to meet our capabilities needs, and taking full advantage of the highly developed technical expertise we both possess. As most of you will know, the United States extended its national technology industrial base last year to include the United Kingdom and Australia. And we see this as a significant opportunity, not only for your own aerospace and defence sectors here, through quicker access to the UK market for products containing controlled technology, but for our own industry with lower barriers to market entry and lighter regulation and import controls greater sharing of information and an expansion of our trusted and secure defence technology community will benefit us both. An historic opportunity for innovators and small companies on both sides of the Atlantic to come to the fore. For us, this is the chance for some of the brilliant British brains working in defence and security to emulate their predecessors those geniuses who gave the world the jet turbine and the bouncing bomb. So enormous opportunities are opening up on the US-UK Defence Street. This is a hugely exciting time to work with the United Kingdom as we adapt our world-class industrial capability to the challenges and the demands of the future. You may well have seen the good news from our budget last week, another billion pounds for defence from our Chancellor. And knowing the Chancellor, that's no mean feat. Um, but this is a substantial boost for the UK defence, allowing us to accelerate our investment in key capabilities, including the nuclear deterrent, cyber and anti-submarine warfare, and continues the above inflation increase the UK defence spending of recent years. That's a statement of continued intent. This year, We've refreshed our defence industrial policy, implemented an ambitious shipbuilding strategy as our industry prepares to export UK warships for the first time since the 1970s, and finalised our com combat air strategy, setting the scene for the combat aircraft that will follow Typhoon and F-35. We want the, to lead the next generation capability development and we have confirmed the investment and the approach we need to make, this, uh, to make this vision a reality. We're transforming our procurement, speeding up our processes in the new threat environment where time is frankly of the essence. We're making it easier for businesses of all sizes to deal with us. And we're continuously innovating, putting over a billion dollars into the new defence thinking over the next 10 years. We're making sure that work involves the, the US as our key ally and international partner. I am sure many of you will be aware of the US-UK Defence Innovation Board, part of the new mach machinery making the UK a nation with truly international aspirations. On that subject, I'm sure that we will touch on Brexit a bit later in our discussion, but I do want to make it clear that we as a country are stepping up on Brexit, we are not stepping back. It is an historic opportunity to reach out to trading partners new and old, and it does not alter our commitment to the defence of Europe one iota, or 
our willingness to protect our capability further afield where necessary. We want our defence industry to participate fully in European capability development and crucially, we want that development to fully complement NATO, building in full interoperability with the United States as our key ally. Cyber is one area where we can do even more. Everything from intelligent systems to lasers to AI, from quantum computing to robotics, we see enormous opportunities for extending our industry's partnerships here, making the most of the UK's strength strength to meet the technological needs of our armed forces in today's rapidly changing threat environment. Mitigating risks to the United States, filling gaps in your arsenals and completing your capabilities in the new domains of conflict. So last month, we hosted the inaugural Atlantic Future Forum, a meeting of our brightest minds, innovators and tech entrepreneurs from across government and industry. And we signed off an important agreement, a real step towards the security of our nations through defensive supremacy in the cyber commons. And, here, and where did we sign that accord? Well, of course, there could only be one place. On board Her Majesty, uh, HMS ship, uh, the Queen Elizabeth, our Navy's most powerful ever ship. Not only home to the world's finest fighter, but now the birthplace of a new chapter in our long alliance. So... Now our roadway extends even into cyberspace. High Street UK and Main Street USA may be separated by thousands of miles, but their foundations were built by the same skilled engineers, and their destinations are the same, our mutual security and increased prosperity as we work to, to, together towards an even broader and even deeper defence partnership. Thank you. discussion uh, following your excellent uh, remarks, uh, Minister, and uh, um, also very good time in terms of your, your visit ahead of the um, crucial Brexit negotiations taking place in, uh, in Europe uh, later this, this month, and just uh, a few months ahead of um, Britain's exit from the um, European Union on March 29th next year, and we'll certainly um, discuss Brexit a bit uh, in, our, in our discussion. Uh, but an opening uh, question for you with regard to Britain's role as a as a global actor as a world as a world power. Uh, here in the United States, uh, Defence Secretary Mattis um, recently unveiled the the National Defence Strategy (NDS), uh, which explicitly says that uh, we return to a world of great power uh, competition. Uh, and he named Russia and China as, uh, as the, the, the two greatest threats that the United States and the free world faces uh, today. Um, General Mattis said that Russia is the biggest military threat and China poses the greatest challenge in national will in terms of uh, challenging uh, America's strategic uh, agenda. And the NDS has very clear implications for, uh, for U.S. forces, and General Mattis has made regaining uh, what he calls current lethality uh, 
as the top priority for, uh, for the US uh, military. Um, there's a great deal of debate across the Atlantic, uh, not least in the United Kingdom, over uh, levels of defense spending and, and whether Britain's military is sufficiently large enough to handle all the challenges that it faces uh, today. Um, the House of Commons Defense Select Committee held a hearing here in Washington uh, just a few months ago uh, assessing or listening to U.S. perspectives on uh, on Britain's military capability at this time. So clearly a you know, very big issue, of course, for, uh, for Parliament and for the British government uh, at, this, at this moment. Um, in, in your assessment, uh, how should the, the U.S. view U.K. military capabilities and efforts to improve the current posture of, of U.K. Uh, of forces? And what challenges must Britain overcome uh, to make meaningful progress and in, in terms of uh, uh, further enhancing Britain's military capacity and how difficult will it be to do so? Oh, big question. Um, <laughs> I think, well, first of all, I think what I would really want to emphasize is um, the UK's determination that we remain a tier one when it comes to defense. You know, we recognize that actually now is not the time for us to be retreating in any way. We are facing uh, changing threats. You've, you've mentioned Russia and China, but as I tried to allude to there, we have to look in various directions now. You know, we have those uh, sort of state aggression, if you like, coming our way, but we also have the continual threats um, of terror attacks. And, and that makes, actually, it, it's a, obviously in challenging environment. It is exactly why um, we are going through our own modernizing defense program at the moment to ensure, as the Secretary of State said, that we have an armed forces that is ready to meet the challenge whenever it may come. It is there to keep up with uh, those that we need to defend ourselves against but it's also fit for the 21st century. And that is why this, the MDP is, is you know, taking time to go through that and make sure that we are, uh, are ready for each of those challenges. Now, if I look at my own portfolio um, in terms of the uh, equipment plan, we are embarking on quite a, you know, quite a huge uh, level of investment and that presents its challenges as I seem to see on a daily basis coming over my desk. Um, but I hope that that demonstrates that our commitment is there. I mentioned the aircraft carrier, our involvement with the F-35 program. We look at all the other projects that we are uh, wanting to invest in. The fact that our Type 26 frigates are being built as we speak and that Australia has now signed up for that and we're getting uh, closer to a deal with Canada shows that we're not just looking at what we can build for our nation, but how we can work with other nations too so that we have that interoperability, but also that we uh, build up our capability as well. Um, and, and that is something I'm personally very passionate about uh, and will ensure that I fight our corner, but our Secretary of State certainly is. And I think it's really important to note that actually in a time when public spending in the UK has been incredibly difficult, we have had to deal with a, an unprecedented level of uh, deficit that we've had to tackle. Uh, 
at a time when there's been increasing demands on some public services that people back in the UK hold very dear, so like the National Health Service and so on. And even in that environment, we have, uh, you know, thanks to the work the Secretary of State has done particularly, we have secured an extra billion pounds in the budget, coupled with the 800,000 that was also announced. That's an extra 1.8 billion over these two years. Uh, I hope will demonstrate that we are absolutely determined to show our readiness to be there to defend the values that NATO holds dear uh, and that we and our allies hold dear. Well, th thank you very much for that uh, big picture overview. And uh, Britain is uh, meeting the 2% uh, GDP uh, uh, requirement uh, in terms of defense spending. Um, in your view, are, are enough European allies doing the same? Of course, a big issue for, uh, for President Trump. He's made it a, uh, a foreign policy priority in terms of calling for greater contributions from U.S. allies in, in Europe. Um, Britain is clearly stepping up to the plate on that, on that front and has done for, for many, many decades. Um, but uh, our are enough uh, British and American partners in Europe uh, doing the same? Are they willing to make that same commitment? Um, uh, are they doing enough at the moment? I probably would say uh, no, because we have to agree to that. You know, we've agreed to the 2% uh, as part of our membership of NATO. And I think it is incumbent on all nations, and we are working very closely with our partners in Europe to help them get to that 2% level because we recognize the importance of it. And when we look at the sort of changing threats that we face, you know, Europe, like ourselves, like other allies, have faced really difficult and challenging terrorist attacks. We're seeing you know, Russia on our doorstep. Um, and it is important that for the security of Europe that every nation plays its part. And actually spending on defense is important. It is not a luxury in these very challenging times. So, you know, I think my message is that we will work with our partners to see how we can, you know, encourage them to get to that 2% because it is only fair that we all contribute to the security of not just our individual countries but our wider nations because it's all of our people that will get affected. If somebody hurts our neighbour, then we are affected too, and it's important that we're there. That's the principle of NATO, is that we stand there together, united. Uh, absolutely, I think a vital message to, to send to uh, every uh, US and British ally in Europe at this time. Uh, and you touched upon uh, Russia uh, just now in your remarks. Um, the Russians are becoming increasingly aggressive. Um, we saw just a few months ago a chemical weapons attack on British soil. Uh, and they've reached sort of new levels of recklessness in their, in their behavior. Uh, just uh, yesterday, a U.S. reconnaissance plane flying over neutral airspace um, over the Black Sea was uh, threatened by a Russian fighter jet that was just a few feet away. Uh, in, in your view, um, is Britain sufficiently uh, prepared um, in terms of military capacity to... Uh, to fight alongside the United States in confronting uh, a potential Russian threat to, for example, the Baltic, the Baltic states? Is, is Britain fully prepared uh, for uh, the eventuality of um, 
you know, possible ground war in, in Europe against, against, the, um, against the Russians. Certainly the Russians are preparing for that scenario. Uh, and, and certainly the United States, I think, is growing increasingly concerned about Russia's uh, activity in, in Europe. Is, is Britain, in your view, um, capable and prepared to, to meet that, uh, uh, you know, the worst case scenario? I mean, I think first of all, I would say is the in terms of the you know the horror that was felt in the UK of those chemical attacks uh, is, is really you know we cannot underestimate it. The fact that this happened on British soil um, was shocking in the extreme, and we are incredibly grateful to our allies across the world who stood with us uh, as we tried to stand up to to Russia um, on that occasion. Uh, in fact, those two occasions. And I know that we had um, some magnificent support from the US. No sooner had they just left after the Salisbury attack than they had to come back when it happened again uh, in Amesbury. And we will always be grateful for that. In terms of uh, our preparedness for Russian aggression, you know, we are working with countries like uh, Estonia, uh, Latvia. We are uh, obviously in, in other parts of those Eastern European countries that border Russia, uh, and we're having a, 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 you know, a good effect. Our Royal Air Force are there um, making sure that um, wherever there is a, you know, a potential um, threat from Russia, that, that, that they're to intercept, uh, and we will continue to do that because actually, the as I said a moment ago, the security of Europe, even though we are leaving the European Union, does not mean that the security of Europe has left our you know, as a, something that is hugely important to us. I, I grew up in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and I, I mentioned my first election was in, in 1987. Um, and actually, I think that was the last election I really remember where defense played quite a major issue because obviously the Cold War was still, uh, you know, still at its peak, as it were, and there was a real discussion about defense spending then. I remember the, one of the tabloids, the Sun newspaper, having a scenario if uh, the Labour Party had won the election of, of defence chiefs going to number 10 and crisis talks happening and so on. But actually, that's how scary it was back then. You know, the, th the potential threat from Russia uh, was, was incredibly worrying. And we have to ensure that we do not end up back in those days. And we have to show that as as NATO, as our uh, allies across the world, we work together to ensure that we have that capability to stop any further uh, Russian aggression, and Britain stands ready to, to support those. Well, it's very significant, I think, that um, Brexit Britain has, has emerged as the, uh, the top adversary for, for the Russians in, in Europe today, and, and Britain certainly is leading and confronting uh, the Russian threat in, in Europe, which brings us to uh, the broader issue of, of Brexit. Uh, and we had the, the privilege of hosting uh, Liam Fox, the UK International Trade Secretary, here in this auditorium uh, a few months ago, where he spoke about US-UK uh, trade. Um, in your view, um, will Brexit have an impact on the, on the British uh, defence budget? And if so, what, what will that impact be? I thought that if I travelled thousands of miles across the Atlantic, I would get away from the Brexit debate, but uh, no clearly such luck, no, ch no such luck, no okay. such luck. Um, look, first of all, I mean, I haven't got a crystal ball, and I, you know, given 
everything that I've predicted in recent, um, in the last couple of years, I, I've got spectacularly wrong. Uh, I probably wouldn't want to predict too much in the future. But I, I, one thing I will say is that I have a faith that um, the, you know, we can get a deal, f uh, a good deal from Brexit, because it's not just within the UK's interests to secure that. You know, the EU's interests also lie in there being a good deal. I have no doubt that it's going to be, um, you know, that it is a challenging process. Let's not forget this is uh, uncharted territory. Nobody's ever done this before. So the negotiations are naturally difficult. And, that you know, they are going to mean that we're, uh, there'll probably be a bit of give and take on both sides. And there has to be in that area. Um, but in terms of the broader future, I see it as an opportunity, and we've got to start talking it up now as, as that. I think there's been too much focus on the negativity. And I remember, you know, in the, in the sort of final days of that referendum campaign where we had uh, the forecast that the economy would tank, unemployment would go up, everything was going to, you know, it was going to be horrendous if we voted to leave. And that didn't transpire. And I think that's because, actually within the British economy, we have a, a tremendous amount of innovation. We have a lot of people who are thinking, you know, it, uh, in terms of uh, taking advantage of our sort of uh, technological advances, the creativity that people have, the research and development, and all of that spills into defence in particularly. And I think as we uh, come to the, uh, you know, the, the 29th of March, we will just continue to do what we have been doing which is building those relations with countries um, across the globe that are our allies, looking at where we can do those partnerships, where our industry can um, work closely to uh, help support the projects that other nations are doing. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned a minute ago, in the US, the, the, the access to some of our supply chain will help to fill some of the gaps that exist. So I can't see any of that changing. And, you know, this gives us an opportunity for us to uh, make our own decisions about how we make Britain an attractive place to invest. And certainly from the discussions I've had with Liam and with the Prime Minister and others, there is a determination to make sure that we do that post-Brexit. Excellent. And uh, it, it is striking, I think, um, just how much enthusiasm there is for Brexit here on the on the U.S. side, especially with the U.S. administration right now, and I think there's a very positive, uh, you know, approach um, being taken by the uh, by the White House and the executive branch, but also uh, on on Capitol Hill as well, where we already have several uh, congressional resolutions urging a U.S.-U.K. free trade uh, agreement, uh, and uh, and so I think that um, you know here in Washington you will find. Um, you know, I think overall a very, a very positive approach on on Brexit. Um, far more positive, I think, than the approach that you'll <laughs> you'll see on the other side of the of the Atlantic at this uh, at this time. Uh, and uh, um, and just following up on that, um, what do you think the Brexit means for the future of the U.S.-U.K. special relationship? Um, first of all, I'll just say something about the uh, perception I'm, I'm sure that is being created. Um, uh, of Brexit, uh, you know, the d sort of debate that's happening in the UK. Um, in the media, you will hear the arguments from the extreme Brexiteers and the extreme Remainers. 
what you don't hear from very often are the vast majority in the middle who either voted to leave or to remain, but now constantly say, and I hear this in my constituency every week when I'm there, I hear the same words over and over again, which is just get on with it. They want us to get on with it, to get the deal, and, you know, we've made our decision. And I think, you know, it's the, that, those sorts of people we need to, to really make sure are, are probably a bit more vocal about it. But in terms of um, our future relationship with the U.S., you know, this is, gives us a chance to strike up a trade deal that we were unable to do whilst we were members of the EU. This is an opportunity for us, and, you know, it's one that we will certainly grasp with both hands because the special relationship between uh, our two nations is incredibly important to us. We recognize how significant it is, not just about trade, of course that's incredibly important, but it is about those values that we share, which is about you know, pr protecting democracy, about protecting freedom, uh, and, and you know, the rule of law. Uh, and that is something that we will want to you know, continue to foster and improve on once we've left on the 29th of March. Excellent. I think that's that's a message that um, you know needs to be sent to, you know loud, loud and and clear actually. And uh, um, we'll be very closely following the the developments uh, with regard to Brexit um, over here. And uh, I should mention as well that um, uh, Lady Thatcher first spoke about uh, Brexit um, back in 2002 in her book Statecraft. It wasn't known as Brexit in those days, but uh, she. Uh, I think was the first uh, politician to urge Britain to think about leaving the European uh, Union. Uh, and so Brexit has been a, a big part of our DNA here at uh, Heritage for, for, many, uh, for many years. Um, a couple of uh, further questions. I know you're on a tight schedule with, with a series of, of meetings, but uh, a couple of additional questions um, for you. You mentioned the, uh, the recent uh, budget that Philip Hammond uh, unveiled, um, and you've touched upon that uh, briefly. Um, could you just uh, explain some detail exactly what that budget means in terms of you know, British defence uh, capability? And and uh, and it seems to me a, a very positive budget in that in that respect. It, it, I can't really emphasise how positive it, it is, really, because for a number of reasons. One, this is a budget that um, also had to be. I suppose slightly cautious in one respect because we're coming up to um, Brexit, so we want to ensure that we're not committing ourselves to something, you know, we want to prepare for every eventuality, of course. That's the important role of a responsible government. That's what we should be doing, and that's what, exactly what we are doing. But as I say, in, a, in, a, in an environment where there have been challenges to public spending, for defence to have secured such a large amount really is uh, excellent. Does it solve all our problems? No, it doesn't, of course not. And that's why we've got our comprehensive spending review coming up next year. That's going to be incredibly important and we will need to continue to ensure that, um, that we make the case for the funding that defence needs. And uh, I certainly will do that. I can absolutely guarantee you that the Defence Secretary will be doing that. He's like a, uh, well, he's from my county, so he's basically a Yorkshire Terrier, um, but a very aggressive one when it comes to uh, come, uh, trying to secure that extra funding. Because 
he recognised, and I have to say, you know, this goes right to the top of government because the modern mod modernising defence programme that I talked about a moment ago is not just about the Ministry of Defence looking at our future needs, our future capability, but it's also the Chancellor and the Prime Minister taking an active interest in that. So it shows our, our clear commitment that defence is an increasingly important part of what we do. And because of those changing threats that we are facing and the fact that they come from very different directions and that new technology means that we are going to be facing um, you know, new areas where we're going to have to look at how we, how we deal with that. Um, you know, we will do everything we can to make the case for that continued funding in, the, um, in that compre comprehensive spending review. Um, but uh, you know, I'm sure we will will make that case forcefully and as uh, aggressively as we need to. Excellent. And does the uh, the budget announcement um, now mean that the purchase of the, the 138 F-35s um, has been confirmed? Yeah, we are absolutely uh, you know committed to to the 138. We've obviously taken. The, you know, committed to the first 48, I think I'm right to say, um, but we've gone with the F-35Bs, of course, because of the, the needs that we have. We have not yet made a decision on what the next tranche will be, but the final figure of 138 is a commitment. Yes. Excellent. And um, on the, uh, the Tempest um, uh, fighter, fighter jet, um, is that a move to work more with your European uh, uh, partners, as some have suggested, and a move away from, uh, you know, from the US? Is that is that a, a fair assessment at all, or is that uh, an inaccurate assessment? No, I think it's more about making sure that we're having that early discussion now. I want to make it clear, by the way, that actually the Tempest, you know, our future combat air strategy. Um, does not lessen our commitment um, to the F-35 programme. This is about looking at where we go next. It's also, Simon uh, and I have been talking about this this morning, it's also about making sure that in the UK we retain the skills that we've got, because I think that's incredibly important. The one thing I've learned in the few months that I've been in this job is that in whatever sphere it is, whether it's land, air or sea or, or cyber, um, when you have a sort of, you know, you, 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 you're developing a project, you have those skills, and then when that project comes to end, you start to lose those skills. How do we maintain the skills that we need and the knowledge and the expertise that we have in the UK? So that's part of one of the reasons for looking at this strategy. But it is also about looking to our allies across the globe, you know, and I make no deliberately make no definition about who that is because we want to have those open discussions with everybody so that we're looking at where we can work collaboratively and we have the sort of the discussions about where we go in the future post F-35. Excellent. And uh, just a, um, a final question. I think we're drawn to a close in terms of the, the time um, the time available. And it's to do with the... Um, uh, the European uh, Union's defence identity. Uh, in the in the Brexit era, Britain will be uh, undoubtedly a you know revitalised uh, world power, looking increasingly to the world rather than uh, simply Europe. 
Um, what, how, will, how will the British government be um, handling the issue of the EU's uh, defense identity? There, there are certainly concern here in Washington that the development of uh, European Union military structures uh, and, and a defense uh, identity itself could undermine NATO and uh, that it could take resources away from the NATO alliance. Um, and there's also a view that an EU defense identity is inherently a political project, advancing a political agenda rather than the defense of, um, of Europe. And I think a number of European officials have indicated that that's actually the, um, um, uh, the case. Uh, and so how do you see the British government um, in the Brexit era uh, dealing with the, you know, the EU defence uh, issue, uh, having finally left the, the European project? Uh, well, first of all, I'd say that NATO is at the heart of our defence strategy. That, you know, that is where we focus our attention. In terms of where the EU may go in the future, well, I mean, that will be up to them to make that decision. Um, but what I would... I suppose what I would say is that each of the nations that are part of NATO, you know, if they are members of the EU, need to focus on getting that, that spending up to the 2% level first, I think. That should be our priority. But where, NATO, uh, where the EU may go in the future, we, the Prime Minister has talked very clearly about building up a strong partnership with the EU where we have shared interests in terms of our defence and security. And there may be projects, and I've had meetings with EU officials about this, that post-Brexit, you know, there may be advantages for the UK to be taking part in some of the research that may be being done uh, in this area, so that we're again, you know, using all of the best technologies and the uh, expertise that's available to us. So it, it, we'll have to wait and see how the, how the EU defence future uh, transpires. But where we do have those opportunities to work collaboratively, we will, will want to do that because we can see that there will be opportunities for the future. But it is important that we're careful not to, I think personally, not to duplicate. Um, let's, let's look at what our strategies are and make sure that we're using the money that we've got uh, in a sensible approach that maximizes our capability and make sure that we are working collaboratively with our allies. Well, Minister, thank you very much for uh, an extremely interesting, engaging um, uh, and very timely uh, discussion. Uh, and uh, I hope your, your trip here to Washington has been very productive and uh, I also wish you all the best with, uh, with your uh, efforts leading your portfolio at a very, very important time for, for Great Britain and also an important time for the, for the US-UK special relationship. And before you go, I'd like to present you actually with a copy of our 2019 Index of US Military uh, Strength uh, produced by the, the Heritage Foundation, which I uh, hope will be a very useful uh, guide um, uh, for you. Um, in, the coming, in the coming weeks and, and months. And uh, it's been a great pleasure to host you here at Heritage, and we hope to welcome you back here uh, in the near future. Thank you very much, Minister. Thank you, too.